0: Possible vibes. <laughs> <laughs> Positive vibes. Or let's just ask Saw right now.
1: <laughs> you can put your arms down. Let us
0: let us see Saw in this chapter.
1: <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Ask ourselves what would Malta do?
0: No, no. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to another episode of Is Fits Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 29, Dreams and Reality. We start off this chapter with Malta and her point of view of the morning after her stealing the dream box and sharing that dream with Rain. Yes. They're at breakfast and her mother and grandmother are confronting her and asking her, well... Not quite asking her yet, but just saying, stating that the dream box is missing, and then asking her, "Did you take it?" Right. Malta is playing a very, very convincing clueless persona. It's not really fooling everyone. <laughs> I, I mean, it's probably fooling Kefria. Let's be real. Yeah. But she's just saying things like, Mother had it last. She didn't give it to me. She barely let me touch it. Is there any fruit or preserves to go on this stuff? Like, just completely, it's a side conversation. My main focus is breakfast. I'll just chime in because you're directing questions at me. But I don't know anything, so please pass the jam and toast. And Kefria continues to say, continues to say, if we are to pay our debts in a timely fashion, we are going to have to live simply for a while. You have been told that, saying no to the preserves. And Malta heaves a sigh. I'm sorry. Sometimes I forget. I hope Papa gets home soon. I'll be so glad when things are as they are supposed to be again. She looked up at her mother and grandmother again in a say a smile. Until then, I suppose we should just be thankful for what we have. She sat up straight, put an agreeable look on her face, and spoons up some of the porridge.
0: It's really interesting because even in this play that she's putting on of, I don't know anything, I'm innocent, it's still somewhat true, I guess, because here she's saying, well, if you say we don't have any money, sure, I know you're wrong. And as soon as dad comes back, we'll have money again. But I guess for now, I just have to pretend just like you guys. And it's still that underlying sense of, even though we know that there's that heavier layer of she's done something bad with this dream box, there's still that undercurrent of Malta really truly does not understand what's going on. Like she has no, no concept, she's not grasping. We know that she has had to work the books before. She has been taught, she's being taught how to look at the numbers and equate that into their real life holdings. And she's just not absorbing any of it, even in this moment.
1: Uh, I think she is. She's just twisting it to her viewpoint because as we discussed at the end of last episode, her role model and the way her world revolves is around Kyle. So having Kyle spoil her with things, then all of a sudden told like, we don't have money. And then seeing how Kefria and Ronica talk about Kyle behind Kyle's back makes Malta think that, Oh yeah, these two are planning on taking power and screwing my daddy out of his rightfully earned place. And he's going to bail you out again with his money that he brings in. It's just so twisted from what, what is actually happening.
0: I guess that's a nicer way to look at it. I just thought it was still her naivety of not understanding. She doesn't want to know, so she doesn't.
1: I think she does have a deeper understanding and Ronica does express that. Of course, she's 13 years old, so she doesn't grasp the subtleties of it. She doesn't grasp, you know, the intricacies of social dynamics and power within a family of what's going on here because it is very complicated in terms of, you know, traditions and inheritances and things like that. And Malta's viewpoint is very young. Right. But she does grasp what is happening, just not the why. And therefore twists what is happening to fit her viewpoint. Because okay. she doesn't really get what's happening. Is what is what I understand it as anyways.
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: And of course that kind of like comes across to us as she doesn't know anything because she's young and stupid and willfully ignorant and thinks Kyle is the best. But I, I truly think that she does have critical thinking within her and she can puzzle this out. But as we see later in a conversation with her and Ronica one-on-one, she is truthfully trying to find ways that her grandmother is just lying to her. I don't know. It's it's everything. in. It, it, it's screaming to me that she's just trying to fit her own viewpoint of all the facts that are coming into her. Just like, how does this fit with what I view the world as?
0: Okay, that's a... Sure. <laughs> I don't know. Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. That's just how I see Malta at this point, at least. Where she is starting to get an understanding because they made her do the books and things like that. I think that would be totally fair to say you know, four multi-chapters ago that she didn't know anything and she didn't understand anything. She was just eavesdropping. But I think opening up her eyes and treating her somewhat more as an adult and having frank discussions about the family's finances and things like that kind of opened up her eyes and maybe subconsciously she's treating some things with a more adult-like attitude. Of course, she's still very uh, immature in how she approaches everything, but I don't know. She's on her way a little bit.
0: I, okay. I don't know. I just really disagree considering in this moment, she's like, yeah, daddy's going to fix it when he gets back and he's going to give me good food again. And then at the end of this chapter also, she throws it on the floor and tells the servant never serve this to me again. I don't care what you have to do to get me good food. I don't think she, conceptually grasps that they really don't have money. Like I truly, even though she looked at the books, I truly believe she cannot grasp that's real. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's coming from a place of her trying to fit her narrative instead of using the facts to open her mind. She's keeping her mind closed and discarding facts that don't align with her worldview. And so she just believes that her grandma gave her fake books and everything's fake and she, they are rich. They just are punishing her. But I don't know. It feels like I don't see that there's room for both in the way that she consistently acts. Like in yeah. this way, it's more placid and like, oh, well, I guess we'll have to wait till dad comes home. And then later it's clear how actually angry she is about the thing. So I don't think it's just, you know what I mean?
1: I I guess I'm trying to see the start of it because I know there's a scene later on, not in this book, but I think the next one where... They're discussing with Althea in their home as well. And I think Ration talking about using Paragon to retrieve Vivatia and their family, where she is the only one who's speaking like an adult, basically, and saying like, "Okay, what is this going to cost? How much like what should we do? Like, I will accept the suit to get the money to fund this. Like, She's speaking very much like an adult. And that's only like a half a book away. So I just I'm trying to.
0: I mean, that's also like.
1: Square those two half realities out. Half a year out. away.
0: <laughs> right? Like, that's not... Half a book away isn't, like, a week from now. It's, like... Well, for six, us, yes. Right.
1: But I'm, not in terms of her character development.
0: No. In the in book, from now until when that happens is, like, six months?
1: I, I'm not sure. Because vivacious is taken pretty soon. And Brashen is sailing with Spring Eve. So... Maybe... Very soon. I mean,
0: it has to be multiple months, right? Like, the news has to get back to them.
1: Sure, a couple months or so, but... Traveling by
0: ship takes so long.
1: Yes, it's going to be a couple months, but a couple months to drastically change who you are, like, an understanding.
0: Sure, okay.
1: So Malta's still acting like this is small talk at the breakfast table, just basically saying, oh, could have just gone missing. We don't know Rainwild magic. And Ronica's saying No. It wouldn't have done that. And expounding on that, when Malta asks how she knows so much, saying that Ronica knew someone when she was young who received one, opened it up, dreamed the dream, and that's pretty much where all of her knowledge comes from. So it is very rich and uh, an expensive gift. But Malta reacts to that pretty much how we've seen her react multiple times to Rainwild mentions saying, I can't imagine marrying a Rainwilder, even if they are supposed to be our kin and all. Can you imagine kissing someone who is all warty, or having breakfast with him in the morning? There is more to men than how they look, her grandmother observed coldly. When you realize that, I may start treating you as a woman. She turned her disapproving stare on her own daughter now. Well, what are we going to do? So I, I found that phrase particularly funny because Malta one has already kissed a rain wild trader mm-hmm. in a dream, technically, but still. And two does share breakfast with. Him.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's I don't know. I, I don't know if she's just trying to push them off the scent more, you know, in this moment where she's just like, "Ew, who would like a rain wild trader? But also I guess maybe not cuz she truly believed this was not a Rainwild trader that the, it just happened. they bought it from a Rainwild trader or something. Like she still doesn't think that Rain is from actually from the Cooper's family, right? At this point?
1: Well, she thinks it was Sirwin or someone who bought it from a Rainwild trader right. or from the Cooper's family. She doesn't have any idea of what Rain was. I think yes, in her mind she's still convinced that the coachman was just a coachman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, but I do th- also like to, I think that's an important paragraph to point out because it also shows that in this moment where this is a really big deal, right? Like this present came in and it has to be handled in a very delicate manner and it's gone all wrong. And instead of Ronica taking charge and saying, okay, this is what we're doing next. She defers to her daughter. She says, okay, what are we going to do? And I think that's really big because that is a lot of power on a really important matter. And she's not putting up a fight. She's not saying, here's what I think. She's asking her daughter's opinion first. And I think that goes to show how much their relationship has grown over the past indeterminate amount of time since they brought up That Kefria wants to be more in charge in the house now. But I think it's really impressive that even in this moment where it'd be really easy for Ronica to take over, she is asking her daughter.
1: Mm -hmm. And Kefria is explaining what next she's going to do and describing the letter that she's going to write, ending that explanation with... But I shall also refuse the suit and most tactfully point out that such a gift so early in a courting is scarcely appropriate, where Ronica does chime in and have a teaching moment with her daughter, saying, by Rainwild standards, it is appropriate for a dream box to be sent that early. Especially for the Coopers family, their wealth is legendary. The The boy probably considered it little more than a trinket. Hmm, maybe we should have married Malta off to him then, her mother offered facetiously. We could certainly use a wealthy relative these days. Mother, Malta exclaimed in irritation. She hated it when her mother said things like that. It was a joke, Malta. Don't fly into a fit about it. And so Kefria stands up saying like this is going to be a difficult letter to compose and I want it done before the Kendry sails upriver. So I'm going to go do that, leaving Ronica and Malta at the table together where Renika then turns to Malta and directly confronts her about it, asking her once again if it was her that took the dream box out of Kefria's room, saying, No, think before you answer. Think what this means to our family honor, to your reputation. Answer truthfully, and I promise not to be angry with you about your first lie. Malta set down her spoon. I did not steal anything, she said in a quivering voice. I don't know how you can believe such things of me what have i ever done to you to deserve these acu- accusations all the time oh i wish my father were here to see how i am treated while he is away i am sure this is not the life he intended for his only daughter no he'd have you auctioned he'd have auctioned you off like a fat calf by now her grandmother said shortly do not flap your emotions at me you may fool your mother but you can't can't fool me i tell you this plainly If you have taken the dream box and opened it well, that is bad enough for a hole for us to dig out of. But if you persist in lying and keep that thing... Oh, Malta, you cannot flaunt a courtship from one of the major trader families of the Rain Wilds. This is not a time for your childish little games. Financially, we are teetering. What has saved us thus far is that we are known for keeping our word. We don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't steal. We pay our debts honestly. But if folk lose faith in that... If they start believing we do not keep our word, then we are lost, Malta, lost. And young as you are, you will have to help pay the forfeit for that. And Malta once again stands up and confronts her lies and says, My father will be home soon with a fat purse from his hard work. You will pay off your debts and protect us from the ruin your stubbornness has brought us to. We'd have no problems if Grandpa had traded up the Rainwild River like any other man with a live ship. If you'd listened to Devad and sold off the Bottomland, or at least let him use slaves to work it for shares, we wouldn't be in this hole. It's not my stubbornness that threatens this family, but yours. Her grandmother's face had gone from stern to shock. Now her mouth was pinched white with fury. Do you listen at doors, sweet granddaughter? To the words of a dying man to his wife? I had thought many things of you, Malta, both good and bad, but I never suspected you of being a prying little eavesdropper.
0: No offense, but that is not A very good insult. (laughs) To her it might be. I guess. Maybe in this society. Oh, the horror.
1: If what she was saying before is all that they have is their word and their honor, basically that they're honest people, eavesdropping is antithetical to that, I guess.
0: True. But literally everything Malta does is antithetical to everything she just said. So I don't know. I think we need to take this back a second because you just read a lot. So we'll start at the beginning. And we have this confrontation where Malta in her mind, no, out loud says, what have I ever done to you to deserve these accusations all the time? Which I find really interesting because number one, Malta lies all of the time and is consistently getting caught. She lies about everything. And then here is like, what have I ever done? Well, I don't know, Malta, maybe try to present yourself on your own in what is known as a woman of the night's dress at a Rainwild Trader function to be seen by men as a woman without any knowledge of what that means. Like That's the top of the list, and there is a huge list. It's just so... I don't understand where she gets this stupid like victim complex from. I don't understand how she can look somebody else in the eyes and say, what have I ever done to be accused of this? Malta, you know, you've done it. It's it's so weird. I just don't understand where this fake outrage comes from. I don't get it. I mean, later she talks about how it's the fact that her grandmother thought that she could be capable of it that makes her lie more. And if her grandmother would have even pretended like, she didn't think Malta would lie. Maybe then she would have told the truth, but that's not true. Malta will just continue to lie and get away with whatever she wants to get away with it. I don't understand. I like truly like this character. I do not understand the logic of I'm always lying. I'm always scheming, but I'm going to be outraged when somebody calls me out about it and pretend like I have no reason for them. I've never done anything for them to suspect me of being this way.
1: Got to get away with it.
0: I guess. I don't know.
1: <laughs> and then she once again says that kyle will basically bail you out of your debts and then lays on the table that she you know if it's all ronica's fault basically that they're in this mess because her grandfather wouldn't trade up the Rainwild river and then ronica wouldn't sell off any of their debts or any of their lands or work slaves or anything to get them money again malta is showing her inexperience with social niceties her morals She's just not a properly raised person at this point. She's still 13 years old. so
0: Right. And it does show how she should have been getting more information before now, right? Like clearly she is able to grasp simple concepts like selling land helps with the money problem. But she doesn't know the more intricacies of that land is important to being an old trader that without that land, they lose their status. And I think if she knew that little detail, maybe she wouldn't think it was Ronica's fault or it was stupid to be stubborn about that. You know what I mean? Like it's really hard. And also the, she thinks slavery is fine as long as it keeps their family out of debt.
1: Yeah. That's something we've been talking about with Wintro's chapters too, though. So.
0: Right. It's, <laughs> I don't know. It's just really hard because clearly she's intelligent and she has such potential to become better than Ronica in a lot of ways. If they would have just trained her before now, if they would have given her a chance to grow, I think this would be a completely different book and a completely different type of person if they had nurtured this a long time before now. And Again, we have, like you said, her saying that her dad's going to fix everything, which I think is another show of her immaturity. Her dad is not going to fix this, even if he was successful, even if we ignore what actually happens in the coming chapters and he came back with the money from the slaves. It's not enough to pay off the debts. It's a payment, maybe, but it's not enough. And she doesn't understand that either. She thinks they're one payment away. But if that were the case... why wouldn't the last payment have made a difference? You know, it's just, I don't know. Such a, <laughs> it's really hard because she's so close and yet she's willfully ignorant of the rest. Because
1: they haven't looped her in on any of the Rainwell Trader debts, really. She knows that they exist, but doesn't know how much that debt is or anything. So I think she sees the debts as, yeah, maybe one payment to the Rainwild Traders, but also- you know, just pay off the people in Bingtown, and my dad will bail you out, and then everything's fine. We'll go back to normal.
0: Yeah, I guess I don't know, but it—I feel like if she's looking at the actual books, wouldn't she see the amount set aside?
1: Yeah, maybe. Or the
0: Rainwild traders—they
1: probably told her about like the amount. Yeah, but in one ear out the other, like you were talking about before, basically.
0: Yeah, I guess. I don't know, either way.
1: Malta continues on this conversation and attacking Ronica as we've kind of set up before in previous chapters. She views Ronica as pretty much the only thing stopping her from control of the family. And this was from Kefria's point of view, I remember from a, a few chapters ago where Kefria was just witnessing the two wills go head to head and here Malta has a chance to confront her grandmother about this. She says, "You know, I was told it was how one became accepted as a woman in this family, to know the family holdings and finances, to be aware of both dangers and opportunities, but it seems to me you would rather risk any opportunity for the sake of keeping my father in ignorance. You don't really see him as a member of this family, do you? Oh, he's fine for fathering children and keeping my mother content, but you want nothing of him beyond that, because then he might threaten your own plan." to keep power and control for yourself, even if it means ruin for the family. Malta had not known the depth of her own anger until she heard it poured out as venom. Her grandmother's voice was shaking as she replied, If your father is ignorant of our ways, it is because he never took the time to learn them. If he had, I would not be so fearful of, your power, of the power he already wields, Malta. She took a breath and says, You show me here and now that you have understanding I did not suspect in you. If you had shown us the depth of your understanding before, perhaps your mother and I would have seen you as more adult than child. For now, understand this. When Ephraim, when your grandfather died, I could have retained far more control of the family fortune than I did. His wish was that Althea have the ship, not Kefria and your father. It was I who persuaded him that your father would be a better choice for captain. Would I have done that if my hope were to keep control for myself? If I opposed your father being a full member of this family? I believed in his stability and wisdom, but he was not content to inherit. He brought too much change too fast, with no real understanding of what he was changing, or why such change would be bad. He never consulted any of us about it. Suddenly, It was all his own will and what he thought was best. I do not keep him in ignorance, Malta. His ignorance is a fortress he has built himself and defended savagely. Malta listened, but it was almost against her will. Her grandmother was too clever for her. She knew there were lies hidden there. She knew the old woman was twisting the truth about her handsome, dashing, bold father. She wasn't smart enough to unravel the deception. So she forced a smile to her lips. Then you won't mind if I tell you what I kn- tell him what I know, to dispel his ignorance that offends you so. You won't mind if I tell him that there were never any charts of the Rainwild River, that the Quickened ship is her own guide. Surely I should dispel that ignorance for him. She watched her grandmother's face closely to see how she would take Malta knowing this secret. But the old woman's face did not betray her. She shook her head. You make a threat, child, and you don't even know what you threaten yourself. There are costs and dangers to dealing with the rainwild traders. Our kin they are, and I speak no ill against them. The bargains we have struck with them I will keep. And then she goes on to explain, but long ago, they decided that they weren't going to take on any new bargains because they didn't want them roped down to any more contracts besides the one that was made so long ago. And Ronica says, we lived a harder life than we needed to, and our debts were not paid off as swiftly as they might have been. We did not mind the sacrifice. Her grandmother's voice began to quaver wildly. We sacrificed for you, you spitting little cat. And now I look at you and wonder why. Chastity and salt water runs in your veins, not Bingtown blood. And she rushes from the room. And Malta observes that there was no dignity and strength in her retreat. Malta knew that that meant she had won. She had faced her down once and for all, and now all would have to treat Malta differently. She had won, and she had proved her will was as strong as her grandmother's. And then she says she doesn't really care about what her grandmother had just said. It was all a lie anyway about sacrifices made for her. It was all a lie. And that's kind of the crux of what I was talking about. Malta has this viewpoint and any little scrap of evidence or truth that she does truly understand. She just says like, okay, I'm not smart enough to unravel this because it all sounds correct and obvious. But I know my grandmother is lying to try to keep control of the whole family and oust Kyle, even to the detriment of the family, just so she has power. It's so delusional and weird.
0: (laughs) Well, I just don't understand where she gets it. I, I truly don't understand because clearly up until now, Kefria and Ronica, well, I guess Ronica, has been fine with Kyle. Ronica has literally had no problem. She, like she points out to Malta, fought for Kyle to be able to have the ship instead of her own daughter, Althea. Like, until right now, this this season of him going to sell, she has had no problem, has probably spoken nothing ill against Kyle. So why? Why in this time is she so convinced that, her father is hated by her grandmother and always has been. I do not understand. I don't know where it comes from. I don't understand why she's holding on so tightly to that lie. Kyle hasn't said it, I'm sure. I don't understand. I like, this is something that is really like, I love Robin Hobb's writing. I love these works. I love all the books, but this point doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how interesting. Like I just conceivably cannot understand how she has in one ill speaking of her father, decided that, that means that her grandmother has forever been against her father and is always working against him and hates him. And she's been eavesdropping since before Efren was dead. So, again, where is the logic? Like, I just. I don't understand if she's been eavesdropping for so long. How is she so ignorant of everything? I know obviously you can't eavesdrop on every conversation all the time and she's only getting bits and pieces, but I, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't understand. Did she just not care before now? I like, it's not like this is the first time she's had to live without, you know what I mean?
1: Well, Malta has overheard Ronica and Kefria talking about Kyle and how they don't agree with what he's doing and trying to gain some control back because that's happened in this book. Right. So obviously there is ill will there and she can hear that. She didn't know that Ronica is the one to give control to Kyle. That was new information to Malta in this conversation here. So going on the assumption that Kyle was going to get it all along and Ronica is standing up to Kyle and speaking for her mother and pretty much being the only one butting heads with him in the first few chapters with Malta in the room specifically because Kyle doesn't like hiding things from his daughter um, even though, I, I don't know, it's weird. <laughs> those Those chapters were frustrating to read. But... With Malta there, Ronica was the only one opposing Kyle's ideas, really. And then afterwards, if Kyle is gone and she overhears her grandmother speaking to her mother about trying to do things the opposite of what Kyle wants, with her view of her father as the daring, bold, dashing father that's going to save everything, that looks a lot like opposing the power that he has and trying to resist him in every possible way and so she's established in her mind a view of Veronica as someone who is against her father at at all corners and in all decisions and has set up somebody like in her mind that yep she just wants to retain power for herself even to the detriment of her own family because she's refusing to use slaves. She's refusing to sell off land. She just wants us to live in poverty. It's that weird twisting of reality that Malta does of, like, my viewpoint is correct. I established this in my head that she wants power, that she is opposing Kyle, and that means that she's lying to me and she hates Kyle for everything.
0: I guess. I don't know. I still don't understand how if this is the first time ronica is putting forth like this time kyle's away ronica's saying negative things but has never done it before it just feels so, so sure to malta that it feels like something that should have been built up you know what i mean like she should have heard it before right now and if we're if she's as smart as we're assuming she is and is able to piece together things right how is she not smart enough then two-piece together, oh, it's only after my father made changes that she's disagreeing. Like, I don't... Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's like... I
1: if, think that is part of it because this is the first time that Kyle has been, quote-unquote, the head of the family because this is the first time that he's taken control of the family live ship and finances. He's sailed on his own ships before or captains of other people's ships, I was, I would assume, since they don't own those ships. But... When Kyle is in charge, she opposes like Ronica opposes everything and she sees that. And that's, I think where it comes from, like, oh, so you only care about this if it's Kyle making the decisions. So obviously you want to retain, retain control of the family like you had before my, my amazing father took control of the family and you just hate him.
0: Yeah, I guess. But I guess the other part of that that I don't understand for me is Especially because she was listening in on this conversation at the very beginning with Devad with Efren. Efren is the one who said not to sell the land. Efren made that decision. Ephron is the one who didn't sell up the Rainwild Trader area. Like he didn't, Rainwild River. He made those choices and he's a man and he was the head of the family. So, why wouldn't she be like, obviously you respected one head of the family, so why can't you respect this head of the family? Or what? You know what I mean? I just, I don't know how to put this into words very well,
1: obviously. I think that particular reason is also kind of an extension of Malta seeing Ronica as wanting to retain power because Ronica made it her decision not to sell it. Ronica made it even like Efren did die. And even though Efren said not to, like it was in Ronica's hands to do it or not, right? So I think, in Malta's eyes, it's all Ronica's choices to make them poor.
0: <laughs> I guess, but she's I, the previous man head of the family said no, so and she
1: might not have caught that. As we said, it might have been bits and pieces listening through doors.
0: I guess. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Well. Malta is working herself up into a tizzy about this whole conversation. She insists that everything that Ronica says is a lie. And she says in her head, again, a lie. And that was another thing. She hadn't meant to lie to her about the box. She wouldn't have done it if the old woman had not been so sure she had stolen it and lied about it. If Veronica Vestret had looked at her and wondered a little if she were innocent, Malta would have told her the truth. (laughs) Yeah, right. But what was the good of telling people the truth when they already believed you were wicked and the truth would just prove it to them? She might just as well lie twice and be the liar and thief that her grandmother would not only believe she was, but hoped she was. Yes, that was true. Her grandmother wanted her to be bad and wicked, because then she'd feel justified in the horrid way she treated Malta's father. It was all her grandmother's own fault. If you treated people badly, then it all just came back on you. I like before before you talk about this, I want to finish up the scene and the uh, narrative irony that's like immediately after this. Okay, when Rach is kind of like gently touching and softly like, hey, are you all right, Malta? Are you all right, my dear? And Malta whirls, seizing the porridge bowl and dashing it at the floor at Rachel's feet. I hate porridge. Don't ever serve it to me again. Don't touch me. You don't have a right. Now clean it up. And she pushed the shock slave out of the way and stormed out of the room. Slaves. They were so stupid about everything. Immediately contradicting what she just said of being horrid to people comes back around. Because slaves aren't people. Ugh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, probably to her. Also... Rach isn't a slave. I I still don't, understand. like, Rach has gotten paid almost the whole time she's been under the care of the It's Not the whole time. She was an indentured servant before, which is code for slave in this town. But she has been getting paid recently. And I I mean, I guess, does that mean that she has a tattoo? Are we to assume that she has a tattoo on her face? And that's yes. why. Yes,
1: yeah, she definitely has a tattoo because she was on a slave ship davod bought her and right. was shipping okay
0: her. i was gonna say i just don't understand why like this indentured servant who is getting paid is still a slave malta but i guess okay never mind scratch that obviously it's because she has slave tattoos sorry <laughs> anyway i can't understand malta
1: in this she's like i don't know it just to me it makes sense she has vilified her grandmother and bla- blames everything that is going wrong in her life on that because she was the matriarch. She was, like, the decision maker. And she opposes her father, who is just trying to do the right thing and help the family out. So everything just kind of, like, goes to her, like, yeah, what comes around goes around because you treat people horribly like my father. So I'm not going to treat you well. And that justifies my treatment and lies to you, grandmother. I don't know. It's just so...
0: I just hate it so much. And I hate her little justification. It's the victim complex that really bugs me. I think that I think the problem with Malta and my problem with reading Malta is that my biggest pet peeve is people who are horribly cruel and then have a victim complex. I just can't like you are choosing to be an awful person and lie and cheat and steal and eavesdrop and then getting mad when people view you that way, that is your actions. That is the direct consequence of your actions. And like, I just, people who act like that are my least favorite kind of people and like genuinely people I cannot stand in real life. And so having to read from her point of view makes it worse because no part of her mind conceptualization of this makes me feel bad for her. Like I don't, it, I don't know. It just like really irks me on a very deep level, which I guess shouts out to the good writing. And obviously like the character being so real is amazing, but also it's my blind spot. It's my Achilles heel. I can't with characters like this. I can't in real life. I can't in fake life. There is no, I don't know. I just, and it makes me angry.
1: <laughs> yeah. And Hobb is really good at writing this. Uh, and, writing that Malta is convincing herself basically because she has these little twists of phrase saying you know her grandmother was not only believed she was a liar and a thief but hoped she was yes that was true her grandmother wanted her to be bad and horrid like there's these little like phrases of yep I'm I'm correct in my thinking just self-assurance and like yes I am truly to blameless here I am truly blameless and the victim she wants me to be be horrid so she's forcing my hand to be horrid no accountability yeah which makes it frustrating but that's the only point of view we have from her this chapter we can move on past her for now (laughs) we move on to paragon another person who has a victim complex although his (laughs) is a little bit more
0: Um, is it a victim complex if you actually are a victim
1: (laughs) (laughs) no that's why I was in the middle of saying, Uh. although his is more, you know, based on the actual trauma he's experienced. (laughs) But he does think that everyone is out to get him and his paranoia does shine through, especially in this section as well. He is once again with Amber and Amber is spending the afternoon uh, with him and here to ask him some questions and tell him about what she has been doing. Paragon goes on to explain that she has kind of made herself comfortable inside the hall, found the things that Brashen had left, and boldly arranged them to suit herself. And so they've just gotten to know each other pretty well, getting comfortable with one another. And Amber... She's investigating. Yeah.
0: She is digging around in all of his secrets, which I think makes Paragon pretty...
1: Uncomfortable?
0: yeah uncomfortable, yeah. but it does talk about some of the things she's found in her discovery, which I think was really interesting. A bag of dice in it, still tucked up in a crack where some sailor had hidden it so he could game on watch and not be caught. A scratched out message on one bulkhead. Three days, saw help us all, it read. And she had wanted to know who had carved it and why. She had been most curious about the blood stains. She had gone from one to another, counting up to 17 irregular blotches on his deck and in various holds. She had missed six others, but he hadn't told her that. Nor would he recall for her the day that blood had been shed, or the names of those who had fallen.
1: And lastly, she found the space that should have held the logbooks. The logs that should have been his memory were gone, all stolen away. Amber had picked at that like a gull at a body. Was that why he, didn't, he would not answer her questions? Did he have to have his logs to remember? Yes? Well, then how did he remember her visits or Mingsley's? He had no log of those things. And he had shrugged saying a dozen years from now, when you have lost interest in me and no longer come to visit, I shall have probably forgotten you as well. So this is very interesting because once again, the narration says that she'd been intensely interested in every odd bit of junk she found because yes, she has silver tipped fingers. She wants to know the history of those objects try to get a better sense of Paragon and who he was before.
0: Right. And we do get a really interesting take from Paragon of why the logbooks are important. He likens it to things that she's asking happening decades ago. Like if he asked her what happened during her infancy, would she know? And that's how it is for him. Like obviously he can remember day to day, but without the logbooks there to solidify it, He's not going to remember it 25 years from now. Right. It's just going to be gone. It just is happening now. And I think that's really interesting and does help us with our knowledge of how live ships work. We had a little bit from Vivacia last chapter where she talked about how without a blood bond on deck, it is really hard for her to stay as Vivacia the Vestrit and not vivacia the ship and what she is made out of. So obviously it's a little bit different with Paragon, who has been alive for a lot longer and has had more contact with humans. But I think it's still part of why he struggles so much and explains why, especially because he's made with two different dragons, why it would be so hard for him to be alone.
1: Yeah, Definitely. And so Amber gets to the crux of why she is here and changes the subject from away from her own childhood and infancy and says, I went to David Devadra start and made an offer to buy you. Then he coldly replied after he is kind of startled by that Devadra start cannot sell me. He does not own me, nor can a live ship be bought and sold at all, save from kin to kin and then only in dire circumstance. It was Amber's turn to be silent. Somehow I thought you would know of these things. Well, if you do not, then you should, for they concern you. She kind of explains that the Ludlucks have fallen on very hard times. And Paragon, before, before she gets into that whole explanation, Paragon kind of interrupts her talking and says, Oh yeah, so you offered to buy me? Why, what will you make for me? Uh, beads? Furniture? His edge of control was very thin, his words sharp with sarcasm. How dare she? And Amber, of course, knows his fluctuating moods and reactions to things and says, I feared this. And kind of tries to calm him down like, hey, please just listen to my explanation about this.
0: I would keep you as you are and where you are. Those were the terms of my offer. which she had explained earlier, the reason that they haven't sold him yet is because they want a condition to be that nobody can sale him.
1: Right. And he, of course, takes offense to that, as he would take offense to probably any response, but saying, chained here, beached forever for gulls to shit on and crabs to scuttle beneath. Beached here until all of me that is not wizard wood rots away and I fall apart into screaming pieces. And of course, Amber doesn't want this reaction, wants to explain it to him and says, please just let me explain. Explain, he said coldly lie and make excuses, deceive and betray. He'd listen. He'd listen and gather what weapons he could to defend himself against all of them. Oh, Paragon, she said hoarsely, put a palm flat to his hall, and explains that the Ludluck family has fallen on extremely hard times with the new traders here and everything like that. They're trying to buy a live ship, and you're the most likely candidates. So the offers keep getting bigger and bigger and the Ludlux really, really need that cash. And so they don't want to sell you. They don't. But them saying no to these extravagant offers basically meant that the new traders are like, oh, so not that amount of money, but we'll just keep raising the price. And she took a deep breath and tried to go on more calmly. Around that time, I began to hear rumors that only the ship that can go up Rainwild River and come back intact is a live ship. So that rumor has got around Bingtown, basically that the Wizard Wood acts as a barrier against the Caustic Waters. So as that rumor has crept about, the offers have risen even further, and the new traders who bid on you promise they will blame no one if you roll and bid against each other. Paragon, do you hear me? I hear you. Do go on. He kept all expression out of his voice as he added. I will, because you should know this, not because I take pleasure in it. And she says that so far the Ludlucks have still refused all offers. I think perhaps they fear what the other old traders might think of them if they sold you and opened up the Rainwild River trade to the newcomers. Those goods are the last complete bastion of the Bingtown traders, or perhaps, despite their neglect of you, there still remains some family feeling. So, I made an offer. Not as great as the others have bid, for I don't have the wealth they do. But coupled with my offer was the promise that you would remain intact and unsailed. For I think the Ludlucks still care about you, that in an odd way, they keep you here to keep you safe." Ah, yes, chaining up one's otter relatives and keeping them confined to a garret or cellar or other out-of-the-way place has long been how Bingtown dealt with madness or deformity. He give, gave a bitter laugh. Consider the Rainwild traders, for example. Who? Exactly. Who? No one hears of them. No one knows of them. No one considers our ancient covenants with them. Least of all me or you pray go on after you buy me and leave me intact and don't sail me. What did you have in mind? So obviously this is very distressing for Paragon to hear. And Amber was not aware that Paragon didn't know the goings on of Bing town, which I feel is somewhat uncharacteristic of Amber who is, I feel very in tune with other people and empathetic right. with their situations and knowing Paragon is beached here. And that's, She's pretty much his only visitor. Mm -hmm. It's kind of surprising that she wasn't thinking that Paragon didn't know that offers were being passed around. Well, I guess
0: to be fair, there's a lot of things you take for granted, right? About being able bodied and able to travel around. Like she can just walk throughout town. And even though she isn't, I guess, I don't want to say trustworthy, but in the eyes of the people here, she's not like a trustworthy person. She's not part of a group. She is an outsider, and even she is hearing about it. I think it'd be really easy to then stipulate that, oh, of course Paragon knows, because everybody knows, even I know. And, I mean, I don't think Amber's just casually letting gossip come to her. I think she's seeking it out. Right. But... I do think it makes sense that you would take for granted the fact that she is able to walk around the markets and be around people and Paragon is not. And maybe she doesn't know that she's the only one that comes to see Paragon. He has told her about Brashin and Althea, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. So I mean, maybe he had to explain that the things inside of his hull were Brashans.
0: Right. So I guess she doesn't know where they are, but maybe she thought they had told him
1: about it or something. Possibly, yeah. And so with him asking, you know, what did you have in mind with me after you did this and promised not to sail me? And she explains her big vision. Basically, have a cradle built for you so you could be upright, have artisans come paint and carve and have this be a living oasis and basically treehouse. And it would be beautiful. And at the end of it, she would say and I would say to the world, Do what you will, for I am done with you. Destroy yourself or prosper. It is all one to me as long as you leave us alone, and we would be happy, the two of us. For a time he was at a loss to say anything. The childish fantasy caught him up and wrapped him around him, and suddenly he was not the ship, but a boy who would have run in and out of such a place, pockets full of shiny stones and odd shells, gull's feather, and you are not my family and you can never be my family. He dropped the words on the dream like a heavy shoe on a butterfly. I know that, she said quietly. I said it was but a dream. It is what I long to do, but in truth, I do not know how long I can remain in Bingtown or with you. But Paragon, it is the only hope I have of saving you. If I go to the Ludlucks myself and say that you have said you could be content in such a way, perhaps they might take the lesser offer from me for the sake of the bond. "'Save me from what?' he asked her disdainfully. "'Such a nursery tale as you can spin, Amber. "'I confess, it is a charming image, but I am a ship. "'I was created to be sailed. "'Do you think I'd choose to lie here on this beach "'idle and near madness with that idleness? "'No. "'If my family chooses to sell me into slavery, "'let it at least be a familiar slavery. "'I have no desire to be your playhouse.' especially not as she had just admitted that she would eventually leave him, that her friendship with him was only because something else kept her in Bing Town. Sooner or later, she would leave him, just as all the others had. Sooner or later, all humans abandoned him. And he says, but you should go back to Devad Start and withdraw your offer. And she refuses, saying, you know, I don't believe in luck, after he says, well, I'm really bad luck, so...
0: If you buy me and keep me here, I will hate you forever, and I will bring you ill luck such as you cannot even imagine.
1: I don't believe in luck, Paragon. I believe in fate, and I believe my fate has more terrible and heart-rending facets to it than even you can imagine. You, I know, are one of them. So for the sake of the child who rants and threatens from within the wooden bones of a ship, I will buy you and keep you safe, or as safe as fate will allow me.
0: This end part is really interesting because it shows how the fool is Amber. I guess. I don't know. I don't remember when I was reading this and figured it out. I don't.
1: I don't remember exactly what point either. But. But it is a very, (laughs) very heavy handed clue.
0: Yes. In here, she, while talking about the dream of the oasis she wants to create for Paragon, Especially when she says that she would tell fate to go long to die without her or p- prosper. It's not up to her anymore. She she gives up.
1: Yeah, I would say to the world, do what you will for I am done with you. Destroy yourself or prosper. Just leave us alone.
0: And I, I don't know, I think this goes back to Beloved's unusual... Oh, I can't think of the word that I'm looking for proclivity to having or helping people in need that she's fond of.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: That are tied up in a fate that she doesn't like. I think back to shrewd and how shrewd is this king that was kind to him and Helped him, gave him a safe space, and truly seemed to enjoy his presence. And she knew what was going to happen to him and still wanted to prevent that. Thought that maybe there's a way to prevent the fate that is coming to the king. And then here she meets Paragon and feels so badly for this child that is left here all alone and probably feels some camaraderie with that.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And again, is faced with this, doing this might offset the course of the world that I've been working so hard. I'm trying to get dragons back. I'm trying to change the world for the better. And yet for this one soul that is sad and has a horrible fate and has had to go through so much suffering, I want to be there and I want to make it better for this one person at least. And then ultimately is not successful
1: (laughs) yeah i think i think amber has that dream that oasis for paragon and that's how she would want to help that soul but knows that's not going to come to pass so she has that dream but knows it's just a dream right and i think that last part does go to show that paragon is in the visions that beloved has for the future She knows that Paragon is important and needs to keep him safe. And so, yes, she's going to do that. She hopes it was this other dream. Right. She hopes it could be something else, but she knows that in some way he just needs to be safe and is part of those plans.
0: It's really interesting. It makes me wonder how much control a white really has. Like they can see all the paths and, know what the paths lead to. And obviously when it's unimportant they can nudge people on different paths, like we see later in v- very much later in the books with B when B discovers the paths and sees like any little nudge would change these people's fates. And obviously that's a really big responsibility, but then for Beloved it seems as though they are on this stretch and kind of can't control where they're being dragged to feels like fate kind of steers the puppet strings and sure yeah. they can walk off the path for a little bit, but ultimately they cannot stray fully.
1: It's interesting. And that kind of goes against what beloved says later to fits though, like right. how small choices affect everything. Basically. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of up in the air. Because the it seems like the catalyst, especially Fitz, who's like a super catalyst or something. Right. Seems to drastically shift things. But because Fitz is just alive in there, it just seems natural that those are the choices he would make. Robin Hobb does a great job of writing him true to how he has always been and writing him fairly consistently. Right. So yeah. to us, it seems like that's always, this is always how it was meant to turn out. Right. <laughs>
0: Maybe maybe part of it is that Beloved is just extra compassionate. Maybe it's the upbringing that Beloved had. Maybe any other white would not be able to stay on the path as long as Beloved does because yeah. they wouldn't feel that overwhelming sense of duty to all of the world, even when so much of the world hates Beloved. I and think maybe. it's really interesting to Beloved's character that they have lived so many lives and so many lifetimes. And a lot of those lives have been as the butt of the joke, as the outsider, as somebody who sure has friends, but mostly isn't really the popular person, isn't the one who's benefiting from a lot of the changes that they're making for the world.
1: But has a core memory and a core upraising of being loved and accepted. Right. With their family.
0: And so I think that's really interesting to think about for Amber and Beloved's character in general.
1: Now we move on to Kenneth who did not have that lovely uh that lovely upbringing. upbringing that beloved did and he is still pretty much bedridden his wound is not healing well
0: it's not really getting better
1: but he is in denial about it basically telling at a like you know shut up i will heal and all will be well once more and she's insisting like no we we need to cut above that sickness. You know it too, but we need to cut more of your leg off so it will heal properly. And he's just like, no, no, I'm done. I'm standing up. I'm going to be fine. And she's obeying him, you know, giving him his crutch, everything like that. Calls Sorkor in and Sorkor is all happy. Like, oh yeah, Kenneth's standing up. So that new healer that we brought in must have done some good. I knew he was the one to choose. If you're going to have someone "'Work on you, get an old man, someone who's been around a bit, and—' "'Shut up, Sorkor,' Kenneth said pleasantly. "'He was no more useful than the other two. "'The custom in Bull Creek seems to be that if you cannot cure an injury, "'you create a different one to distract your victim from your incompetency. "'Why?' I asked him. "'Did he think he could heal a new slice to my leg "'if he could not cure the one I had?' "'He had no answer to that. "'I am tired of these backwater healers. "'Like as not, I shall heal just as fast without their leeches and poison.' The smile faded from Sorkor's face as he came slowly into the captain's room. Like as not, he agreed dully. And Edda points out to Sorkor, tell him that he must cut the leg higher above the foulness. He will listen to you. He respects you. So both of them know, Sorkor and Etta, know that his leg is not healing properly. Sorkor was extremely happy that Kenneth was standing up because they've been through three healers now like, this one, finally, yes, he did some good for you. It's going to work. And then it didn't work, and Sorkor is a little bit bummed out about that.
0: Yeah, it's it's really rough. I don't, I don't quite understand why Kennet is holding on to this piece of flesh that is mostly gone already, also clearly rotten. It's not as though he has to cut a whole leg off. He still has the leg. The leg is gone already. He just has to cut a little bit more off and he's holding so tight onto the fact that he does not want to do that. And I get like, obviously it's a very traumatic thing and he didn't want to lose a leg in the first place. And maybe this is a little bit of, you know, keeping that sense of control. Yeah. But it is really interesting to have him fighting for a piece of rotten flesh that is doing nothing
1: for him. Well, it mirrors so closely to the Wintrow chapter, right? Yeah. The... Broken and busted finger, where Wintro, who is trained in that, who has seen examples of people, you know, not wanting their limbs cut off and him being like, You have to, you know that, like you're gonna die otherwise. Right. Duh. Why wouldn't you? The same same attitude that you just expressed, actually. Just like, why wouldn't you do this? Right. It would only help you. And then he was in that position and didn't want that to happen to him because the view of the person is a whole complete person. If you chop off your leg, then your view of yourself is a little bit different, right? And Wintrow had to square that away in his mind of like, I'm still me, even with nine fingers. My finger doesn't make me who I am. And Vivesha helped him with that. But Kenneth is alone in having those conversations i guess he has his charm but his charm hates him so (laughs) yeah Kenneth is alone and having those those thoughts with some of his consciousness squirreled away in paragon and as you said that huge huge latching on to the control thing like this is this is what he is in control of he's just going to heal it's going to be fine it's always been fine trust in my luck I didn't have a say in losing my leg before, but I have a say now and I'm not going to lose any more of me.
0: Yeah, that's like a good way to look at it. I didn't quite see it that way. Yeah.
1: But also, these healers are like putting leeches on him. They're bleeding him. Yeah, I agree with him. Just like, get him away from these healers.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably the medicine they know right now. <laughs> they don't know.
1: <laughs> so... Kennet is saying, you know, Etta, get out, commanding Sorcor to get her out, and Etta is pleading with him, like, oh, please, please, I'll be quiet, I won't say anything else, I'll stay in the room, and Sorcor is just walking her out, and slowly shuts the door. Kennet would not have been so gentle if he'd been able to deal with her himself. That, of course, was the whole problem. She saw him as weak now, and would try to get her will in everything. Ever since she'd tortured his prisoners, he'd suspected she enjoyed the idea of cutting up helpless men. He wondered if there was some way he could leave her in Bull Creek.
0: Like, her will is for you to get better. I don't... <laughs> Again, what in the world... Like, what warped lens is he viewing this world from? It is so strange. <laughs> like, his, his wrist charm is right. Like, boy... You got to figure it out because these people love you for whatever reason and you need to trust them. You got to trust somebody. I don't know.
1: So Kenneth starts over this conversation again with Sorkor as if nothing had happened in the previous scene saying like, oh, and how was your visit to town? How is town looking? Sorkor pauses, but then indulges the captain basically saying, you know, they're all but begging you to come ashore. They love you. They saw a raven flag and turned out the whole town for us. "'Little boys were shouting your name from the docks, "'Captain Kennet, Captain Kennet, "'and I heard one tell another "'that when it came to pirates, "'you were better than Igret the Terrible.' "'Kennet startled, then made a sour face. "'I knew Igret when I was a lad. "'His reputation exaggerates him,' he said quietly. "'Still, that's something "'when folk compare you to the man that burned 20 towns, "'and enough of my fame,' Kennet cut him off. "'What of our business? "'They've resupplied us handsomely,' And the Cicerna is already hove down for repair. There's a lot of rot in her hull. I'm surprised the satrap would entrust a gift's delivery to a rotten tub like that. I doubt he's inspected her hull, Kenneth suggested dryly. And they welcomed the new population we brought them with open arms. Last slave raid carried off the best smith in town. We've brought them two new ones. And the musicians and such are all the talk of the place. Three times now they've acted out the liberation of the Cicerna. Got a right handsome lad being you, and a great worm made up of paper and silk and barrel hoops that comes right up. Sorkor's voice died away abruptly. It's a real fancy show, sir. I don't think there's anyone in town who hasn't seen it. Well, I am glad that the loss of my leg proved entertaining for so many. Now that's not it, sir, Sorkor began hastily, but can waves him to silence and gets on to the real topic that he wants to discuss. My live ship, he begins." So again, we see the welcome that the Raven flag has in a pirate town. Again, for (laughs) latching on to your conversation, these people love him for whatever reason. For the townsfolk, it's fairly obvious he is freeing slaves. He is bringing people to these towns, and they're being accepted wholeheartedly because they're most likely slaves themselves or have been victims of the slave trade in some way. So... Kenneth of course, doesn't really care about any of that, just that they are accepted in and he is beloved. But we get the interesting com- uh, comparison now between Kennet and Igret the Terrible.
0: Yeah, so we know Igret is the person who took Kenneth yep. when he was a boy, took over Paragon.
1: Killed his, his father and took over Paragon and yep. captured Kenneth.
0: Yeah, it is very sad that that's what happened, but obviously clear why he would not want to be associated with Igret. He doesn't want their names to be coming up in conversation together. He is trying. I don't think anybody knows that he used to be captured on Igret's ship. No, I think that's a pretty good secret, but I'm sure part of him doesn't want their names together because he doesn't want anybody to remember that he was there. He doesn't And also you wouldn't want to be known to be just like your abuser either. Like I get, like I get that as well. There's a lot of layers
1: to what's going on. And if what we've, at least my, my main explanation and analysis of Kenneth is his main driver is to get rid of any mention of Igret the terrible, just erase his existence pretty much. But since he's such a fantastical figure in the pirate community he needs the live ship to do so. Right. He needs to be better and more well-loved. He needs to create the Pirate King nation. He needs to be the number one pirate that pops up. So Igrit is erased. Right. And so because of his past, he doesn't like those comparisons right now. Even though this is a necessary part, it means that his plan is working. He's getting raised to those same conversations as Igrit. He needs to surpass and completely eradicate mention of that pirate name. Right. So yes, he changes the topic away from that quickly because he doesn't like any mention of Igrit.
0: And obviously, the whole conversation in general he wanted to know obviously how they're doing, but then ultimately to talk about their plans for the next live ship.
1: So Sorcor is not very happy. He's like, "Oh, sorry. I thought that's not like that's not in our cards right now. Like don't worry about it." And kind of it's like, "Oh, We didn't have an agreement then? Come on. For every slave ship you get, we chase after a live ship. And Sorkor tries to nickel and dime him saying, that's not quite the agreement. It was if we saw a slaver, we went after her. And then the next live ship we saw, we'd go after. But you're talking about hunting a live ship or laying in wait for one. So this is a conversation that has been picked up again. They've had this in the past off screen. So we're talking about creating a plan to lay in wait. And this is kind of what Etta was talking about a few chapters ago as well.
0: Right. So obviously her idea was good because Kennet has co-opted it into his own. And it's really interesting because Sorcor here is kind of ready to be done with slave ships, too. He says, you know, maybe we just need to take a break. Let's go back to the original pirating. It's much more profitable, like you said. Let's do that for a a while. Let's just take a break. We don't need any of these things. We've gained enough of a reputation You showed me with Etta being here that there is more to life. I didn't understand before, but now I see the benefit of having a woman. I see the benefit of creating something like a legacy. And I think we've done enough. This is enough.
1: Yep. If we went back to Divi Town with a good haul, well, like Sincur Falden was saying about being respectable and settled and all once we have a live ship under us you can have your choice of virgin sorcor a new one each week if that is what pleases you but first my live ship so kenneth just brushes aside real fast like yeah i know i'm right but we're getting my live ship that's that's a decision and goes to planning and sorcor is reluctantly you know agreeing to what kenneth is explaining here and sor or, and kenneth excuse me is ignoring Sorcorr's reluctance for now. He's talking about a crooked island and Hauser Channel, which is where they're going to lay in wait. There's shoals there. There's only one passage through in between this area that's very treacherous, but also very fast. If you want to be safe, you go around the island. It's a little bit longer, but a little bit more safe because you're not going to get grounded and put a hole through the hull of your ship. Sorkor frowns and says, you took us in there one time, the Satrap's galley got after us. Current caught us and we shot through there like an arrow. Took me three days to believe I came out of it alive. So Kenneth is agreeing like, yeah, that's a much swifter passage than if we had gone east of Crooked Island around. So Kenneth's saying like, yeah, we anchor there. We anchor right before that. See which way the live ship is going. If it's going around, we can cut it off quick. And, you know it off, we'll meet it there, and then we'll have our chance of actually capturing a live ship. Sorcor is pointing out, like, what if they ram us? What if they want to go through us? And Kenet's like, eh, it doesn't matter. We'll get a live ship. Sorcor, of course, is very upset that they might lose the Marietta, their current ship, and Kenet is one-track minded. It's like it doesn't matter. We'll gain a live ship, right? Sorcor is more practical in this sense. And Kenneth, of course, is a little bit obsessed with this idea of getting a live ship. So Sorkor just doesn't quite grasp it. And he's saying, like, this is not a good idea. A hundred things could go wrong. And while he's explaining things that could go wrong, Kenneth, in his head, is thinking he meant it. He actually meant it. He wasn't going to go along with the idea. How dare he? He'd be nothing without Kenneth, Nothing at all. A moment before, he'd been swearing he owed all he was to his captain, and now he would deny him his chance at a live ship. A sudden change in tactics occurred to Kennet. Sorkor, do you not care for me at all? He asked with disarming directness. That stopped his words as Kennet had known it would. The man almost blushed. Well, captain, we've sailed together for a time now, and I can't recall a man who's treated me fairer or been more... Kenneth shook his head and turned aside from him as if moved. No one else is going to help me with this, Sorkor. There's no one I trust as I do you. Since I was a boy, I've dreamed of a live ship. I've always believed that someday I'd walk the deck of one and she'd be mine. And he shook his head and let his voice thicken. Sometimes a man fears he may see the end sooner than he'd believed. This leg, if what they say is true for me... He turned back to Sorkor, opened his blue eyes wide to meet Sorkor's dark ones. This may be my last chance, he said simply. Oh, sir, don't talk like that. Tears actually started to the scarred mate's eyes. Kennet bit his lip hard to keep the grin away. He leaned closer to the chart table to hide his face. It was a mistake for his crutch slipped. He caught at the table edge, but the tip of his rotten stump still touched the floor. He cried out with the agony of it and would have fallen if Sorkor had not caught him. Easy, I've got you, easy now. Sorkor, he said faintly, can you do this for me? He was shaking now, he could feel it. It was the strain of standing on one leg. He wasn't accustomed to it, that was all. He didn't truly believe he'd die of this. He'd heal, he always healed, no matter how badly he was injured. He could do nothing about the grimace of pain that twisted his face, or the sweat that had started fresh in his face. Use it. Can you give me this last chance at it? I can do it, sir. The dumb faith vied with the heartbreak in Sorcor's eyes. I'll get your live ship for you. You'll walk her decks. Trust me.
0: Yeah, so Kenneth should have actually taken up as an actor, it appears. Yeah. <laughs> because he's really good at feigning emotion, which we've already known. He's really good at manipulating people. But I think here is one of the most skillfully done versions of this.
1: Like a true sociopath.
0: Right. He is using his tears. He's using the pain that he's feeling from his injury to help fuel the pain in his voice. He is really pulling out all stops. He wants this live ship and he's going to get Sorcor to agree no matter what.
1: Yeah. And, and some of this, you know, leaning on Sorcor is real because at the end of it, he says he's drawing every bit of strength he had um the the healing of the stump was drawing every bit of strength he had he couldn't really do anything else and he says i shall have to ask your help to reach my bed as well my strength deserts me captain sorkor said the growling affection of a dog was in the word and Kenneth stored the thought away to consider when he felt better somehow asking sorkor's aid had made the man more dependent on his approval than ever he had chosen his first mate well he decided were he in Sorkor's position, he would have instinctively grasped that now was his best opportunity to seize full power. Luckily for Kennet, Sorkor was slower wedded than he. Or, you know, he actually had affection for a man that made his life better. <laughs> right. <laughs> and seemingly cared for him. So, yeah, it's just, it's crazy how good Kennet is at manipulating.
0: I think it's partially his luck.
1: It is, a little bit. Having
0: good time, such perfect timing. but But this was clearly
1: planned out a little bit in the moment, but planned out. he's great at improvising.
0: And I mean, he has rescued Sorcor in a way. He has elevated him to a pretty high up position. He listened to Sorcor's idea to go after slave ships and by doing so has made a better name for himself, but also his first mate and has done something that his first mate truly cares about, which is freeing enslaved, enslaved people. And we have this now with Kennet being able to use all of that history in this moment and make somebody care for him.
1: Yeah. Having your captain, who has been a very two business, closed off, private, opposite of like a pirate man right who you admire and who has helped you before suddenly open up about his pain and his fear of death and wanting to fulfill his last dreams makes Sorcor like yes this is a man I follow. This is the man that I want to follow and want to look up to. I will do everything in my power to help you get this live ship. Sorcor does what Kenneth asks, brings him to bed, and he says As Kennet clutched to him, for an instant, he was overwhelmed by an ancient memory of his father, black whiskers and whiskey breath and sailor stink, whirling and laughing in a drunken dance with the boy, Kenneth in his arms. A time both terrifying and happy, Sorkor set him down gently on the bunk. I'll send Etta in, shall I? Kenneth nodded feebly. He reached after the memory of his father, but the chimera danced and mocked him from his shadowy childhood. Instead, another face smiled down on him, sardonic and elegant. A likely urchin. Perhaps something useful can be made of him. He tossed his head against his pillow, shaking the memory from his mind. The door closed behind the first mate. So before I move on for that, that memory right there is Igrit looking down at him and saying, a likely lad, something can be used from him. And that's kind of his shadowy childhood being brought up again, that's kind of the effects of Paragon uh, taking his memories, taking his hurt away from those things. As we learn from Fitz later, all of his past memories are just fuzzy and blunted. Nothing is really sharp. Nothing's clear. So that's what I get from this scene in Kenneth's eyes. Everything's kind of blurring together because he's morphing his abrupt memory of his father that he doesn't really remember into his next, I, I don't want to say father figure, but the next man in his life who was in control of his life, igrit right. It just kind of blending those two together.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting that this is what comes to him. It's clear that he is a lot worse for wear than he even thinks. And even what he came off as at the beginning of this section I think at the beginning of this section, it's easy as a reader to think, obviously, he is not in danger. Like, we all know that a festering wound is not good, but he seems to be doing okay. And then in this moment, we get a glimpse into just how not okay he is doing.
1: Yeah, feverish.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you don't really have, like, I guess I've never been in this position, but from everything I've ever read about stuff like this, you kind of only start getting those visions of the past when you're <laughs> not
1: doing very well. A lot, the last couple sections with kind have been like that. We've started off with this burst of energy and he just tapers and fades away into the pain. It's just basically, I'm guessing what Etta and Sorkor are realizing and seeing as well, just these bursts of energies and this energetic return of the man and then nothing and passing out afterwards right before he does we get his charm talking to him you don't deserve these people why they love you is beyond me i would tell you that i would rejoice in your downfall the day they find you out save that is also the day their hearts will break by what luck do you deserve the loyalty of such folk by my luck Kennet replies, by the luck in my name and the luck in my blood, I deserve them. Which I did not catch the first few times I read this through because he says, by the luck in my name. We don't know yet, but this is Kennet Ludluck. Right. And I didn't catch that the first few times I read this or reread this because it's just a simple little response and the only time I think it's alluded to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But he laughs at himself. And says the loyalty of a whore and a brigand such wealth and the charm replies your leg is rotting rotting up the bone it will stink and drip and burn the life from your flesh because you lack the courage to cut your own foulness from your own body do you wit my parable Kenneth? shut up he said heavily if i am evil what shall we say of you you are part and parcel of me this piece of wood had a great heart once The charm declared, you have put your face upon me and your voice comes from my mouth. I am bound to you, but Wood remembers. I am not you, Kenneth, and I swear I shall not become you. No one asked you to. And he passes out. So we get a little insight to Wizard Wood, who seems more aware than live ships because they don't have you know, years and generations of memories sunk into them. This small wizard word charm seems to have woken up and retained a little bit more of its own personality and memories, seemingly.
0: Yeah, it's really weird because, I don't know, obviously I don't understand the ratios of how much life essence needs to go into into a wizard wood to be able to create that into a live being and obviously ships live ships specifically aren't just a figurehead right they have the whole hull of a body so that they can float up the rain wild river but also like there's a lot more than just the figurehead the figurehead's the only part that seems to come alive and so obviously you would need way more time but it is really interesting to see this little tiny piece of wood was able without any death at all to become alive, but then in because of that, is kind of more willful, I guess, and more right. knowing of its origins.
1: It's an interesting little peek into Wizardwood, yeah, or at least for first time raiders. Definitely, it's an interesting chapter. Um, again, it feels uh, like we're back into a setup chapter, right? This is kind of Laying the groundworks for some future things, we have the Vestrates and the Havens kind of laying out consequences for lying about the dream box for having it been opened, and Malta saying, you know, being Malta basically. Right. <laughs> and then we have Amber and Paragon's laying the groundwork for Paragon not being happy with being sold, wanting to be sailed, and. Amber saying that you are part of the future and I'm going to keep you safe and I want to buy you. So we have that little foreshadowing of, yes, Paragon will be sold and will be bought by Amber. And then lastly, the setting up for one, the charm, the wizard would, and that secret there. We have the live ship laying in wait and planning on capturing a live ship. The only live ship that is still out there from the story if you're paying close attention we know it's Vivacia because there was uh two live ships mentioned from Jamelia: one ophelia and one vivatia ophelia has already been mentioned in candletown so Vivacia is the only one that they can be laying in wait for
0: well to be fair they do mention that they're not sure where ophelia is because she's making stops throughout right. so I, she i'm
1: saying be. for readers we know that it's going to be Vivacia because Ophelia is in Candletown. We've oh, already talked yeah, yeah, with, with Althea. So Vivacia is the only one that can, can be laying in wait for.
0: What is the name of the place that they're waiting in, laying in wait for?
1: Uh, Hosser Channel and Crooked Island. People have asked where this is. There's an individual map of those things that is supplied in Ship of Magic, but it's not labeled in the big Map of the pirate isles or anything. So we don't know really where that is. But yeah, it's laying a lot of groundwork for the rest of the climax of this book and leading into the next book as well. So some analysis going on, but not a ton of action, I guess. A lot of conversations. Right. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week
0: yeah I did actually want to quick um make a mention. This is about Malta um and something that I was too heated to remember that I wanted to talk about. Why does Malta decide to play so dumb to her family members? She knows that they're not treating her like an adult. She knows that they don't think she's capable of being an adult. So why does she play into that instead of proving that she is an adult? Why not? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, she's not an adult. She's not proving she's an adult, but proving that she has the capability of becoming an adult. Why pretend to be a little girl?
1: I think that plays too closely into what she can get away with and how her life already is. She's used to being, you know, playing the dumb, innocent person so she can get away with lying and things like that. I, I don't know.
0: It just just kind of
1: fits into her worldview at this point.
0: I guess, but it just, it's, she's just so mad about them never trusting her. Like she constantly in every chapter, for the last three times we've seen Malta, she has made some comment to herself about how she can't believe they don't treat her like an adult. She doesn't understand why they continue to, she's confused or she will say out loud that she's confused as to what they want from her because they want her to be an adult, but they treat her like a little girl. And she continuously brings up this confusion of, I don't understand how they can't see me as a woman, but then never makes any move to be seen as a woman. She never tries to show that she could be a woman that she is growing up. And I don't understand when she wants to be taken seriously as an adult why she would do that. Like if she, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I think her, her anger is too central to her character. She's wants to be angry for that anger's sake to direct it at people and doesn't want to take any steps to rectify the situation. She just wants them to change and her not to change at all because she's young. She's 13. So I don't think she is mature enough to be like, okay, I have to do things differently. It's no, you have to change how you view me. And I'll just keep being the same thing. You know, I think it's just a misguided worldview of how things work.
0: Yeah, I guess. How people grow up. It's just one of those things where it's again, like we acknowledge that she's very intelligent and that she is on her way to becoming an adult. But then some of her choices are just so and I get like that's kids, right? Like They're not adults, so they're not making fully formed decisions. But I don't know. Easy to forget.
1: Yeah. So if you have thoughts about Malta, please let us know. Uh, we want to hear everyone's you know, analysis, their theories, anything you guys want to talk about at all. Email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can subscribe to our YouTube, leave comments on those episodes or on our Twitter posts or DM us on Instagram or Facebook or leave comments there on those posts as well. We're at IsFitsHappy on all four of those. So if you have anything at all you want to say to us, Please chime in. We love reading them. And thanks so much for tuning in this week.
0: See you next week. So now we're going to talk about some of the stuff you guys have brought to our attention. I think we'll start with an email we got from Jonas. This is a little bit about Kenneth and a little bit about. specifically from chapter 141. In that chapter, we had Kenneth first realizing that his leg was gone and the interaction with Etta and just overall what was happening and coming to terms with that. And we talked a little bit about his relation, Kenneth's relationship with Etta and how we were viewing it as this sort of version of Kenneth's love that Kenneth isn't capable of love in a real or normal way, I guess would be better to put it but that this was his version of that and coming through and that he was frustrated because Charm Kenneth who can fully love Etta and does is making things awkward for him.
1: Yeah, and he was using that love as a manipulation as well. And Jonas chimes in here with his own even more cynical take about that, basically saying it was for control and it makes him kind of uncomfortable that he has to deal with it. So he's like, no, just let's not even bring it up or talk about it anymore.
0: Right. And so we had viewed that as he was awkward and didn't know what to say, but Jonas is putting forward the theory that potentially that was him shutting down the conversation. So he doesn't have to keep going. Yeah. He, He doesn't actually love Etta. There is no love there. He loves what he can gain from Etta as a tool.
1: Mm -hmm. And basically expounds upon that, basically uh, talking about how Kenneth, the situation that he's put in with his leg missing and cut off makes him extremely vulnerable. And because he's forced to rely on Etta for things, or she's kind of insinuating or... Worming her way into the crew and in between him and the crew and a lot of things as he sees it and taking control of things and gaining respect and deference from the crew and from Sorcor, he needs to take some of that control back and, and really is basically putting out the idea that everything that she has is because of me, you know, like I'm the source of that control, which is his way to take ownership back.
0: Right. And like he gave her that, Power, And so that's why she has it. And that's the kind of messaging he's trying to send to the crew
1: and to Etta herself.
0: Right. And in this moment, there's a little bit of he's stuck between a rock and a hard place because what the charm has implied is that Kenneth does feel love for her and that he just has to act like he's mean and he can't take that back. Because Kenneth is a very proud person and he can't, he doesn't want to be seen as someone who sways from idea to idea. He has to be sure in whatever it is he says. So he feels as though he can't just say, I didn't mean that I don't like you. He has to go with it. Right. And instead of trying to push that more, he just ends the conversation. Because that's enough of that.
1: And then there's also a little bit of talk in here about how we were discussing the disgust that Kenneth feels about Vivacia, a live ship, being used as a slaver, saying, oh, that's not true then. The rumors that you're hearing aren't real because no one would use a live ship like that. Jonas is talking about how having a live ship and being on a live ship is kind of an ideal that Kenneth has set up in his head since he was a kid. And it's this pristine, like, this is the image of a live ship. You are the top of the top. And having a live ship being sunk to the level of holding slaves, of becoming a stinky ship, and...
0: Really dirty. Yeah,
1: just filthy, does not fit those ideals that Kenneth has in his head.
0: Right. I also think it's important to note that we had postulated that the reason he was upset at hearing this was because he would feel bad for the ship or feeling the feelings of the slaves. And so that's why he was disgusted by that idea. I think that was one of the theories that we threw out was maybe he knew that you wouldn't want to do that because of the feelings of the ship. But Jonas is saying that he believes it's more of an aesthetic sort of thing, I guess is the best way for me to phrase it. But less about the feelings of the ship and more about his own feelings and what he equates slave ships to, which I think is really interesting. And it's I like hearing more callous versions of Kennet. It's really interesting to put him in that sort of position and. Try not to see the good in him. (laughs) So it's I don't know, it's really hard. Uh, Who knows, but I like the idea. Thank you, Jonas. Yeah. I think the rest of our talk is going to be about dragons and ships. (laughs) So we'll transition into that by talking about some comments made um, on Facebook by Bastion.
1: There was one little addition to a conversation that we had last week talking about genders of the cocoons or the serpents and carved figureheads and things like that. And Bastion does make a correction or points out that in the uh, last book, when they do become dragons, Paragon's dragons are actually a male and a female. So it is somewhat kind of answered in the books a little bit of what if one serpent was a different gender than they identified with than what their live ship was carved as. And there is one who is a queen and one who is identifies himself with like the Vestrit side and is called Carig Vestrit or something like that, or names himself as that. So there's two dragons, two separate identities there, and there was under one ship, which Besides just having two different dragons vying for an identity within Paragon's head, that could also be creating another layer of confusion upon Paragon and another layer to his madness, I guess.
0: Right, and feeling that things are really wrong. Not only is he in the wrong gendered body, he is in the wrong body form entirely because he is not human, he's dragon.
1: And And sometimes being, this is correct.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting to think about the nuance that that plays into these characters. And also it's interesting to think about how in dragon, I guess, culture, society, whatever you want to call it, the woman is the one that's more fierce and the one that takes control and is in charge. They have more of a matriarchal society. And so it's really interesting that the temper that we're seeing come forward whenever Paragon is upset and feeling the most uncomfortable is probably the female dragon kind of taking over that personality and the more genteel and meek version of Paragon that is more at comfort and at peace is the male version
1: yeah, but it's it's weird to just describe them in those terms because there's also the generations of other memories that go right, into it because definitely. he also talks about, you know, becoming the boy in him or the commanding captain, you know, at times. It, it's very odd. So, yeah, confusion for the reader, confusion for Paragon himself. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. I don't know. I just think it's a very interesting thing that we'll have to look into more as we go.
1: But yeah, that's the only example of that happening in the books, I believe.
0: Fashion does say that potentially Ringsgold could be one of the ships that also has this problem, but their gender is never specified either when they are a ship or when they are a dragon. So they potentially could be another where the dragon's gender and the ship gender doesn't match up, but we have no idea either way. So very interesting things to think on.
1: Bastion also comments on the history of dragons. We were kind of talking about this a little bit as well and reminds us that Merkur gives us, Merkor gives us an insight in dragon history during which he states that dragons were fairly unintelligent creatures until they were exposed to silver. So this might not correspond with some of the theories discussed during this episode. So Yeah, we were talking about like evolution and, you know, exposing humans to dragons and potentially they made humans more intelligent. Or maybe humans made dragons a little bit more, I don't know, speaking, sentient (laughs) sentient or something. I don't know. There was a bunch of different theories thrown out about that. But that is an interesting thought that, yeah, dragons were kind of wild way, way, way in the history of things. Before silver being introduced as a regular life cycle component for them and retaining their memories.
0: Yeah, I think it's really good to remember that silver is kind of the contributing factor here. It's what makes them what they are and what they're going to be, and does help them later in the next Rainwild Chronicle series, where the new generation of dragons are weak. But as soon as they have the sunlight and silver, they do a lot better.
1: So thanks for those comments.
0: Yeah. And then finally, we're going to talk about some things that Ant sent in on Instagram. Um, And I guess we'll start off with some more lore of (laughs) the serpents, because that's kind of ties in nicely from what we just talked about. But this is about, how the one who remembers works and sort of that whole situation where how do they know when to go and how are these serpents made like what makes them know it's time to go what makes them ready and ant has a really interesting point of view they say that in later books the serpents have been lost because there are only two she who remembers serpents whose job it is to guide the serpents up the river river to the hatching ground. The first one was captured and the second one is cocooned into vivacia. So their belief is that the serpents are supposed to work or the way that serpents are supposed to work. And their idea is that the golds like Malkin have memory necessary to lead a tangle to she who remembers and it's really interesting when we point out that Vivacia's awakening is the reason that the serpents feel like it's time to go now.
1: Yeah, that's what Anne's theory is, that Vivacia finally having that awakening, being there, is what triggers the serpents to make their migration.
0: Yeah, they think now's the time because she's more aware. It's, I think... I like the idea that it's vivacia that causes this, that she's the, yeah. the stone that turns into a wheel um, or an av- avalanche, I guess. <laughs> and that she has some sort of say or not say, but.
1: Part to play in that.
0: Yeah. And just that the serpents can sense her power, I guess, her awakening.
1: Yeah. Memories being fully realized or like a sentience of. Of her planks, I guess.
0: Yeah. And we know that the serpents uh, are drawn to her just from last chapter when she's in the river and can sense them all around her and they're trying to talk to her.
1: It's a cool theory. I'm not sure I fully believe it or believe in it. Time could be played with here a little bit, but the epilogue or the prologue is serpents being ready and traveling away. And then a couple chapters later, we have Vivacious Awakening. I mean, it could be time, you know, put out of order and just like narratively arranged that way. That'd be cool. But also, how would that work if they're like half a world away? You know, I I don't know. There's some things in there that I'm just like, it's a very cool theory. It links together nicely, except for a couple small details that play right in the beginning of it. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm fully convinced, but I do like the thought. It does link up nicely narrative wise other than those, (laughs) those details.
0: I think I'm okay to forgive some of the things that are a little bit more questionable just because of the way magic seems to work in this world. It's so nebulous and like Kenneth's luck. How could he possibly have that much luck and how is it always where he needs to be? (laughs) And I feel like in that sense, it makes sense to me that the live ship would know the death of the most recent Vestra is imminent and that is causing stirrings. We know that Althea talks about how it's a lot easier to reach out and dip into the memories that Fyvacia has while she is riding on her. And that seems somewhat new, although maybe it's not new. Maybe it was more just like, she just wasn't allowed to do it before to the extent that she has. Right. But I don't know. I think, it's easy to, enough to say that the ship could sense the life force of leaving um its captain even though captain Vester was so far away i don't know
1: yeah just possible
0: like luck linked everywhere <laughs> who knows but i do really like the idea and so i want to thank i want to thank aunt for putting that forward but i also want to finish up with aunt's thoughts on wintro the priest because i think these are really Interesting, So it's their tinfoil hat theory, which I love when you guys use, <laughs> about how Wintro is finally becoming a priest and that Saw's teachings are all about contradictions. And so there's this idea that Con- Wintro hasn't really had any, quote, real struggles yet, real in that. Before now, it's all been happening to other people or it's something that was just in a book. And in coming to the ship, he is experiencing these problems for real. And he's really good at getting those theories and understanding the theories, but now he's having to put it into practice. And so Ant postulates that it is really cool to see or like really, really a change in Wintrow that we're seeing him become a real prophet and that in the end he becomes a sailor he calls himself a sailor but yet still preaches about saw and talks about saw's goodness and you know teaches saw along the way and so clearly it's another contradiction of saw
1: yeah so and is talking about you know as we learned in the beginning of this book Berendal and Wintrow talking about the contradictions of Saw and what number they were on. And Berendahl is kind of expressing how fast Wintrow grasps those contradictions, which are basically the key tenets of Saw's religion. And Ant is putting forward that being a sailor and being a priest is a current real-life contradiction that Wintrow is experiencing, and he has to reconcile those somehow. And at the end of this, he does overcome that and grasps that and accepts it into his being and moves forward with his life rather than being stuck on that.
0: Right. No. And I think that's really cool and a really interesting idea to put forward and to see it like just one big contradiction. And that's the point. I think that is probably all Wintrow has ever wanted (laughs) is to be his own contradiction foresaw. (laughs) But no, I thought that was a really interesting idea in theory that, it's part of saw's plan if you will um, but thank you aunt and jonas and every, bastion. and bastion and everyone who wrote in it's always nice to hear from you guys it's nice to hear from everyone who writes in and we really appreciate your points of view and your theories and seeing other ways that we can read the text we look forward to seeing what you guys have next week